Well, Dr. Claudia Bushman, thank you so much for coming on Mormon Stories Podcast. It's a delight to have you. Well, thanks for inviting me. Uh, I just have to say that I think over 1,400, 1,500 people have listened to your first episode, and that's a lot for uh, only a week or two. I don't know if I want to compare that to your husband's statistics because we don't want to embarrass him, but um, I just want to thank you for that. I know a lot of people have really appreciated it. And because of listener requests, I wanted to follow up uh, with another interview, and you've been very gracious to uh, to come on. So thank you very much in advance. Well, I hope that it's worth your while. Oh, uh, I know it will be. Um, <laughs> so uh, here, here's here's the goal. Um, we've we've talked about feminism uh, in the 19th and 20th century in the United States to give a background. We've had you talk a little bit about uh, your background in feminism within the church and, and women's issues. But but w- one of the things that I'd feel really um, sad to, to omit is a really good discussion of women in 19th and, let's say, early 20th century Mormonism. Uh, it, w- one of the things I said in my introduction is that if you polled the average church member and said, name five inspirational women in our church history— you know, maybe they'd get Emma, but Emma has been in many ways discredited uh, by by some. Maybe they'd say Eliza or Snow, but they wouldn't be able to actually uh, say much about her. And then I think after that, you'd have a really hard time. And so what I would love to do is have you talk, um, to the extent that you can, about uh, what it was like to be a, a woman in 19th century uh, Mormonism and even early 20th century Mormonism. And if you could just leave us with three, five, however many you're comfortable, names and stories of women that uh, that every Mormon should know for one reason or another. So let's start wherever you feel comfortable, and I'll uh, maybe ask some questions along the way. All right. Well, I um, have ten women I would like to just mention. And uh, I would say, you want inspirational women. What I want is real women. So I like very much the documents that they've written themselves that are from their time that tell how they really feel uh, rather than uh, putting on their heads this wonderful heroism. I like to write against the heroic pioneer stereotype because I think it gets so sort of sentimental. So I like uh, to deal with people as much as possible as they present themselves. I know that's already a representation of how they actually were, and when I write about them, that's another representation. But um, still, I I like to avoid, if possible, this kind of tunnel history that we generally deal with, where we just talk about the wonderful attributes of these women and don't talk about the circumstances that they live in. And so I would mention some people and... I would particularly say that it's the people who write who last. And if any woman out there has any inclination to be remembered throughout her, the future, the next few generations, she just better get busy, sit down, and write out her story and her experiences. Okay. And so having said that, I'd say the first most important document, if you're looking at the church from a women's point of view, is Lucy Mack Smith's story, which has been published in a number of forms. But it's just a wonderful document and provides most of what we know about the early life of the church and of the prophet. And I would just like to read you a short piece from that, but tell you 
what to notice from this particular thing, and that is how immediate she is when she talks to us, how comical she actually is, and how she is at the center of the story that she writes about, uh, how she dramatizes everything that she does with herself as an important figure, and how she writes dialogue, which cannot be correct. I mean, Lucy Mack Smith wrote this after the death of her son's and she uh, dictated it for about a year to Martha Jane Corey Knowlton, I think her name was. Anyway, it took her about a year to do this, but you are right there all the time. So this is what she says about after uh, she has been up late at night and Joseph and Emma have gone to get the golden plates. Well, she's up all night, and then in the next morning, they're still not back, when the male portion of the family was seated at the breakfast table, Mr. Smith inquired for Joseph, for he was not aware he had left home. I requested my husband not to call him, for I would like to have him take breakfast with his wife that morning. No, no, said my husband. I must have Joseph sit down here and eat with me. Well, now, Mr. Smith, continued I, do let him eat with his wife this morning. He almost always takes breakfast with you. His father finally consented. But then in came Mr. Knight, who was their guest for the evening, and he came in quite disturbed and said, Why, Mr. Smith, my horse is gone. I can't find him on the premises. And, of course, that's because Emma and Joseph have taken him up to the <laughs> hill to bring back the plates. Right. Right. And I want to leave for home in half an hour, and I don't have my horse. Never mind the horse, said I. Mr. Knight does not know all the nooks. I'll get William to get the horse. So that satisfied him, and then he realized that his wagon was gone. He then concluded that a rogue had stolen them both. Isn't that not wonderful? <laughs> 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 Mr. Knight, do be quiet. I'd be ashamed to have you go about waiting upon yourself. Just go out and talk with Mr. Smith until William comes. And then I trembled so with fear, lest all might be lost in consequence of some failure in keeping the commandments of God, that I was under the necessity of leaving the room in order to conceal my feelings. Joseph came in then. He saw this and said, Do not be uneasy, Mother. All is right. Now, isn't that a wonderful account? Yes. What if we didn't have that? That would just really be sad. T tell, us what, tell us what you love about that. Well, as I said, I love the immediacy of it, even though it's written years after. I love the drama. I love that Lucy puts herself, injects herself into the center of all her stories, does it pretty well. I like that she fakes the dialogue. I like all the things about it. Mm. I think that's one of the best little sections. But also, it's this contrast between this high religious moment and this low comical dramatic moment. That's what I like. Very colorful. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, Lucy Mack Smith was, a, was an important figure in Joseph's life, Joseph's life wasn't she? She was, and uh, without his, her family's, his family's support, I'm sure that things would have been much different for him. I like to think, I read in the, in the Bible commentary once that said, God chooses a family and then went on and talked about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so I think that in Mormonism, this is true. God chose a family, and it was the Smiths, and they were all involved. Mm. Very good. All right, Lucy Max Smith, great, great woman for us to know. Do you recommend her biography, her autobiography? 
Absolutely, and there are a number of versions. Levina Fielding Anderson's book that does an editorial job on it, comparing all the versions that have been printed over the years is probably the best one to look at, but uh, I just have an old Arno republication. That's the one I've used. The book has been, as I said, it's been re-edited several times to suppress various things or emphasize them uh, in connection with, as you may remember, Emma Smith was somewhat um, under a cloud for a long time afterwards, and Lucy Mack was the same because they didn't go west with the saints. But um, I think that Levine's book is probably closest to the most accurate. It's a wonderful book. Anyway, I've said that before. Okay. So all readers, Levina Fielding Anderson's autobiography of uh, Lucy Mack Smith. She calls hers Lucy's book. Right. Yeah, I, was, I have to admit, I was a little bit saddened when I heard that someone had taken the liberty to rewrite her autobiography. That, that didn't feel right to me, but maybe we can have some compassion and understanding for maybe why leaders feel like they need to do the things they do. I don't know. Well, yes. <laughs> I guess that's enough. <laughs> okay. But then, actually, I have a quotation that talks about how, um, well, let's see, after the, the Smiths were killed, um, the newspapers began to publish stories about how various people would be, would be, um, what do we call that, ejected from the church, and Emma was usually listed there. And uh, so the 12 defended Emma at that time, but as you know, she was um, fairly much demonized, vilified, if we want to use those strong words, later on by the saints who did go west. But um, there's a quotation that the 12 used to defend her, which was published in the Times and Seasons, which I'm just going to read because I like it so much. Emma honored her husband while living, and she will never knowingly dishonor his good name while his martyred blood mingles with the Mother Earth. Mrs. Smith is an honorable woman. The very idea that so valuable and beloved a lady could be coaxed into a frame of disgrace like the above is as cruel and bloody as the assassination of her husband at Carthage. Mm. Yeah, so anyway... It aroused all kinds of strong feelings one way or another. You know that when the body was exhumed, when Joseph's body was exhumed, she had one of her sons cut off a lock of his hair, of Joseph's hair, which he wore in a locket the rest of her life. Kind of a dramatic little detail. Yeah, it's hard to imagine someone who suffered more in the in the whole early Mormon experience than, than Emma did. That's right. They were just caught in a terrible terrible set of dilemmas in that she believed he was a true prophet, but he was preaching something she couldn't stand. He loved her, but she, he also really did treat her badly in all kinds of ways. But um, I have another document here which I'm very partial to. When uh, Emma was, uh, when Joseph went off to Carthage to jail, uh, Emma had asked him to write a, to give her a blessing, and you remember that he said that he didn't have time right then. She should just write a blessing, and he would sign it when he came home. <laughs> yeah, that's like uh, putting the telephone on your head for a blessing. <laughs> but uh, anyway, she, she did this, and I only recently came across this blessing and was very interested to read it because I just hadn't been aware of what she had said and. 
It, uh, reading it made me think that something that all women should do is write their own blessings. They should say what you want and uh, you know, reflect what you think should be done and if they have a good chance that it might happen. Anyway, I'm going to read you parts of her blessing, not the whole thing. It's not all that long. And, of course, Joseph never did come home to sign it, hmm. but it made its way across the plains with Joseph Haywood and eventually... Juanita Brooks found it in somebody's possession, and anyway, it eventually, at least a copy of it, made its way into the church archives. But anyway, just a couple of things that she says, and I'll give you first the first part, and then that gives the flavor, and then some of the specifics. First of all, that I would crave is the richest of heaven's blessing would be the wisdom from my heavenly Father bestowed daily, so that whatever I might do or say. I could not look back at the close of the day with regret, nor neglect the performance of any act that would bring a blessing, so on. Mm-hmm. And she desires the Spirit of God so that she will have discernment from the Holy Ghost. She desires that all children that were born to her or were committed to her charge, and she does take care of several who are not, as you know, and that she will be able to bring them up in such manner that they will be useful ornaments in the kingdom of God and in the coming day, arise up and call me blessed. And she desires that her body will be taken care of, but this is the part I'm getting to. I desire with all my heart to honor and respect my husband as my head, ever to live in his confidence, and by acting in unison with him, retain the place which God has given me by his side. And I ask my Heavenly Father that through humility... I may be enabled to overcome that curse which was pronounced upon the daughters of Eve. Two very interesting things. Despite all the trouble she's had with her husband, she wants to honor and respect him and remain in unison with him by his side. And then, in what we never do anymore, (laughs) she talks about the curse of Eve. May be enabled to overcome that curse which was pronounced upon the daughters of Eve and then talks about her unison with those women. I desire to see that I may rejoice with them, these are the daughters of Eve, in the blessings which God has in store for all who are willing to be obedient to his requirements. Finally, I desire that whatever may be my lot through life, I may be enabled to acknowledge the hand of God in all things. You know, isn't that a beautiful blessing? Very faithful woman. Much more than you'd expect, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and any detractors of, of the Prophet Joseph would have to figure out how to explain her love and devotion to him, because if anyone saw the ugly close up, it would have been her, yet this clearly isn't a posterity letter. This is a letter she wrote for herself, and she's still, yes. and she's still expressing a desire to, to be at Joseph's side. Mm-hmm. And I like the business of the acceptance at the end, that I may be able to acknowledge the hand of God in all things. It was all meant to be. She also seemed to have a love for her sisters, a strong love for for women. Yes, that's the Relief Society business in part, you know, when she says, we are going to do something extraordinary, which Mm. they did, which was fine. (laughs) Beautiful. uh, Anyway, Emma Smith is certainly what person that we have to put on that list, no matter what, particularly seeing as she was in the shade for so long. We have to really make much of her now. 
Mm. And that particular blessing I found in the book Mormon Enigma by um, mm-hmm. by Val, uh, Linda Newell and Val Avery. So yes. That's a, a book that's full of things that are worth reading. Beautiful. Beautiful. So, um, Lucy Max Smith and Emma. Um, well, then, of course, things get more complicated. Since I wanted to talk about something that went on in Nauvoo, what I wanted to show was a little bit of the frontier high life that went on in Nauvoo. But I don't have it by a member of the church, but by a Gentile who was visiting. And this is Charlotte Haven, a young girl who wrote from Nauvoo in 1843 how she had attended a party that was given by Sidney Rigdon. Uh, And this party began at uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I like this because it is an example of the kind of social life they had. It's been one of my crusades over the years that we really celebrate Christmas incorrectly in the church. Why do we have Santa Claus? He belongs to other traditions. We could certainly use the manger and all that business, but we've got Joseph Smith's birthday on the 23rd of December, and I think what we should have is a Joseph Smith birthday party. And uh, this is the model that I would use. Hmm. Okay, so we've got uh, Charlotte Haven going to this party at Sidney Rigdon's house, arriving at 3 o'clock. And when she gets there, she's ushered into the room where there was a large quilting frame. That's how they had their parties, surrounded by eight of the bells of Nauvoo and to whom she was introduced. And she uh, she sat down and began to quilt but no words were said at all, and she felt that her presence had maybe checked the hilarity of the occasion, so she offered a few kindly remarks, only to be answered very briefly, yes, marm, no marm. It was quite embarrassing, but the next neighbor timidly whispered, we talk in the evening. So she was stilled, and she continued to quilt until 6 o'clock, and that's when the fifth quilt was finished and taken down. And then... The door to the next room was thrown open and we were ushered in and through the whole length of the table, the whole length of the room from the post office to the stove, there was a long table with a substantial supper of turkey, chicken, beef, vegetables, pies, and cakes. To this, they did silent justice. (laughs) Anyway, then they left the family to clear that away and they went back to the other room and they sat around the room like wallflowers, she said, and then... Mr. Rigdon came in and shook hands with the men and proceeded to introduce each of the men to all the women. Mr. Monroe, this is Miss So-and-so, Miss So-and-so, down the line. And then when he was done, another one was called up. Anyway, they were eventually all introduced. Then this ceremony over all seemed more joyous. Songs were sung, concluding with two little girls singing several verses of the Battle of Michigan. Then followed an original dance without music, commencing with marching and ending with kissing. Mm. Who could believe such things went on in Nauvoo, that holy city? (laughs) So then they began to play merry games, the Miller, Grab, etc., and seeing as it was not at all an intellectual gathering, she suggested fox and geese, which she had played ten years before, and that took well. Her brother came upon the group during the evening and Sidney Rigdon was saying to his wife, come look in upon the young people that he had been over half the world and had never seen anything equal to this in enjoyment. So at 9 o'clock, they go in for more supper and then more games and more dancing. 
and she left about 10. But look, that's a seven-hour party. Hmm. The Miss Rigdons called on her the next day, and they said the party didn't break up until midnight. Hmm. Now, that's how they celebrated in Nauvoo. You know, I don't know. Is that faith-promoting? Maybe not enough. You know, when I think about how how we entertain ourselves these days, that just seems spectacular. How do we get back to that? Now, what do you mean? What do you think is so spectacular? All the gaiety or what? Just It seems like they're loving life and loving each other. Just, just a, a rich, deep interaction of fun and joy and games. Am I, mis- am I misinterpreting what you read? No, you're not. And I quite agree. And um, a couple of, um, of memoirs that I've read just this last week, the one of Virginia Sorensen, who grew up in Manti, and of Juanita Brooks, who grew up in the Southern Colonies, I was very struck by that. What a rich social life they had because they have nothing else and they created all themselves, but all the pageants, all the parties, all the special events. And, uh, well, how do you think we can get back to it? Well, we could. I actually have things to say on that subject, but never mind that for this moment. (laughs) But you have hope that someday we can maybe return a bit to our, um, our, uh, not frivolous, but our joyful uh, roots. Well, I'm a project person. I believe, yes, you do a project. You plan an event. You do things of that kind. And you do them with the people that you're around. And uh, I just would like to see much more interesting cultural life in our church than goes on today. Hmm. Wonderful. That's a wonderful reading. Thank you. All right. Why don't you ask me some questions? I've got some more of these people, and I think they're very interesting, but maybe this is more reading than you want. No, the reading is wonderful. I guess, um, you know, is there a way, is this putting you too much on the spot to say, what was it like to be a mother and a wife in, in Nauvoo? You know, I guess it wouldn't hurt to talk about who some of the prominent women were, uh, in, in Nauvoo in terms of leadership or um, influence that's really putting you on the spot. But it'd be great to paint a picture of, of, of um, how a, a woman's life then might contrast with a woman's life now and just to, to sort of get a sense for in the power circles or in the, the circles of influence um, what role women might have played. I, but that's a lot to bite off. And so answer some or none or all uh, as you feel fit. Right. Ask me tomorrow when I'll have it all on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> but um, as, as you know, um, the, the situation in the church is that uh, certainly in the early days, women have no official place at all. But what they do have is their, their prayer circles where they have, they practice their spiritual gifts. They speak in tongues. They bless each other. They do things of that kind. And that is all they have until 42. In the other broadcast, I think I talked about this wonderful revelation to Emma Smith that said she should exhort the congregation and um, whatever the other word is, the scriptures, so that, and that she could really be a person that took part in those things. But none of the women are doing that. They just don't. They have this um, life that is very different. And for my interests, I don't really like to deal with the importance, important people, as much as I do the ordinary people, because 
you get a very different idea of the church and of the people when you deal with the institutional life. If you're just going to talk about the president and the important people of the Relief Society, then you still don't get down to that ordinary person who is doing the milking and managing as best you can. And we have made a lot in the church about the the glorious social life of Nauvoo, but Nauvoo, it lasts for seven years, and the beginnings are so hard, and it's so hard throughout the whole thing that I really think we tend to over, to exaggerate the good things that went on. And then, of course, they had to leave that all and went down another step or two. I like an account that um, the friend of the, of the Mormons, uh, what is his name, Cain, him, when he goes to call on some Mormons who have just left Nauvoo and are starting on their trip west when they're just camped outside. And he says that he has never seen a group of women who are so attractive that they are so clean and neat and beautifully put together, that they dance in the evening, that their ears all show the sign that they had earrings in them, so they're all pierced, apparently. But, of course, all their earrings have long since been sold. But really shows them as a group of beautiful heroines, which, you know, you don't really get that picture if you look at the photographs from Salt Lake right. <laughs> of the people that have arrived. So, uh, But he makes them much more beautiful and heroic than they would be otherwise. Hmm. So I think I've got a lot more to do about reading in... in um, Nauvoo than I've been so far. Do we we know if women were allowed to pray in church or hold callings or even speak in church? No, none of that. It was all all just the the men. Oh, Until 42, when the Relief Society is organized. And then, even then, of course, that's not Joseph's idea. The women come to him with the model that they found from the greater world for sort of a, a helping society. But after that, of course, it moves very fast. And you have temple ordinances. You have women um, in, in the temple. You have all this whole new idea of the um, of, um, eternal family. And um, so things change in 1842. And then, you see, you have a very short time before Joseph is killed. I really think there would be some some big changes. There would have been some more things happen if Joseph had lived. But so it's very, so as a call to women today, it sounds like the the positive changes or uh, um, the progress that was made in Nauvoo um, for women started by actions of women. Well, you can certainly make that case. You can certainly make that case. Um, you remember the dialogue on that that said where the women go to Joseph and say, we'd like to form this organization. He says, that looks wonderful. It's the best constitution I've ever seen, but I'm going to organize you according to principles of the priesthood. And that's the first time women enter the structure of the church at all. Right. So, so that's, that's wh- dramatic. Okay. Yeah, I know we tend to think that the old days were wonderful compared to the new days. And... Uh, I, I don't think that's necessarily so. There are some surprisingly good things that happened to the women in the early days, and there are also some that were pretty tough. I, I think my feeling is that 
that Mormon women have really had opportunities all the time if they were willing to take them. But what we lack is vision. And uh, I think that we got caught up in these last years in fighting battles that were just unwinnable because they just could not be, just people just couldn't allow women to have certain powers. Just so, but there are other things. There are always other possibilities to do. Jan Ships makes an interesting comment where she says that women's lives in the church have been, become much more passive than they were in the past, while men's lives have remained the same. And that it's because of that that women will never be allowed, Mormon women will not be allowed to write their own history. Well, I disagree with that. I think we have to write our own history and we have to be as honest as we can about it. But you know, you're certainly aware that women's, the woman's story is a very vexed subject in the church still yet. Sure, sure. Okay, so that, that's, um, that's fascinating. Sounds like Nauvoo is an important time for us to understand um, you know, the the past and the potential role of women. So what comes after Nauvoo? Well, I think we should talk a little bit about the pioneer trip. And uh, I think we have, what we know when we talk about pioneers is we know about the first wagon train where Brigham Young set off with his 150 men. We know about the Willie and Martin Handcart companies when people suffered. And we do know that a lot of people did suffer and die crossing the plains. But the largest number of them didn't. And I would think, certainly if each of us walked 15 miles a day, we'd probably be better off for it. You know, it's not exactly a, an easy trip, as we know. And I thought at least it was easy until you got to the Rocky Mountains. But after visiting Wyoming in the spring and seeing that terrible wind and knowing what happened to the handcart companies, I think it probably was hard throughout the whole thing. Anyway, I want to say something about the second wagon train, which was very large. As I said, Brigham Young had 150 men, and the second wagon train had 10 times that many people, 1,553 people. And just because I like statistics, it had 2,212 oxen, 124 horses, 587 cows, 358 sheep, 716 chickens hmm. and some pigs. I think it's interesting that they count the chickens and not the pigs. <laughs> I don't know why that is. But what you've got is this huge, moving agricultural village. They have everything but land. Hmm. And I am indebted to Mary Isabella Horn, who was later a woman's leader, who left these statistics, which I like a lot. And she tells a little bit about her travel across and um, her settling in, New York, in Salt Lake City. That family had three wagons, and they had some real luxuries. They had a small cooking stove, a rocking chair, and food to nourish eight people for 18 months mm. because they had to be fed until the next year's harvest of their unplanted crop. Now, that's really dramatic, I think. And so what you've got is women keeping house along the trail, just the way they would at home to the extent that they could. And when they passed Brigham Young's party, which was returning to winter quarters, they prepared a feast, roasting a fat steer and improvising a table 
for a thousand diners. Mm. Holy moly. This despite that the snow was falling heavily. (laughs) Mm -mm. So, you know, there you have the heroic housewife managing despite all. I think that's really wonderful. Anyway, Mm. when they get to to, um, Salt Lake, they're among the first to actually have a house. They lived in a tent for a while, and then they got moved into a two-room log house, but no floors or doors. And they improvised a corner bed by boring holes in two walls to insert poles, which then met where there was one bed leg that sat on the floor. Can you picture that? Hmm. I think it is so ingenious. And then they interlaced strips of rawhide for the spring. And they, for light, they used a little twisted rag with um, some, li- some grease and made a lamp. And they brought with them two windows as well as their stove and rocking chair. And they made things out of packing boxes. So what is interesting to me is the way they managed to recreate the houses that they had lived in before, similar to those that they'd left behind. Now, what they had for a roof in this case was sod. And this meant, as she said, that even after the rain stopped, it continued to rain inside. And uh, that meant that the people would go about their work carrying their umbrellas to shield themselves from this muddy water that was falling from their ceilings. Hmm. Now, isn't that a great vision? Wow. Image. Yeah. Yeah. So they had some hard times. But also, they managed. And... uh, when these wagon trains are going off and uh, leaving the people behind, the women that are left in the in um, winter quarters, that's where they practice all their their uh, spiritual gifts and do things of that kind. Hmm. Anyway, yeah. So was it just grueling? Was it just grueling uh, to to be well, to be a woman and a mother under these circumstances? I think it depends completely on your your state of health and everything. I think, though, that uh, I just made it sound as good as possible, I think, because one of the facts that gets me is that the wagon trains would stop when there was a breakdown, but if there was a woman in labor or delivering a baby, they would not stop. So you just imagine <laughs> having a baby in one of those rocking, bumpy wagons. It would just be... Who could imagine such a thing? It's no surprise that mothers and babies died under those circumstances. You know, my wife has a hard time taking one child to the grocery store for an hour, and I'm not disparaging her. I've tried it, and it's almost impossible. How do you take a family of four or eight across the plains under those circumstances? And, and keep, uh, maybe, maybe everyone rises to the occasion because they have to. Uh, I'm just trying to wrap my brain around how to maintain order in the family and and not have a kid run off and get run over or get catch disease or injure themselves and you know gosh it seems complex and especially when so many of the husbands would be in charge of them companies of 10 and 50 and 100 so they would have to be gone all the time supervising whatever else was happening around yeah i think it would be very tough on the other hand um, these people didn't know what they were getting into. And uh, we have a lot of people that fell away from Nauvoo. Maybe if you had a place you could go to, you might uh, have left at that point. Um, the people, I understand we had a stronger 
percentage of people who had immigrated from Europe rather than people from from local places in the United States that stuck with it at that time. And again, I mean, what what are your choices? Yeah. By this time, they're down to no money of any kind. Uh, where are they supposed to go? Do, do we have a sense for how, how men, on average, treated women? Did, did they have, you know, behind the scenes, they were open and candid discussions about important issues where they felt equal partners, or was the man just sort of cavemanish and you're the woman and know your place and I'm going off to do my man's work? I mean, do we even have a sense from journals as to what relationships were like between husband and wife um, during this time period, Mormon or not? We're going to have a complete range, of course, and there were certainly many men that depended very heavily on their wives who were taking care of things while the, while the men were, were off. You know, the, uh, have um, Mormon women who have the entire management of their households, of their families, uh, because their husbands are busy with business affairs and also because they're off on missions and things of that kind. And I don't know of any cases, I have not heard of any cases of serious physical abuse of wives. There are, they are certainly treated, not always respectfully, but not necessarily browbeaten. They're just sort of ignored. They're just part of the, part of the, um, machinery of your household but um i think that'd be interesting to find out i'm sure there were some pretty good companion and relationships as well but i'm interested in how many of the women always referred to their husbands as mr so-and-so rather than calling them by any pet names or even their own first names there's a certain kind of of uh, distance and respect in marriage at the time so potentially for many, sort of a, a business, um, logistical kind of relationship, but for many, maybe not close intimacy or, or co- confidence between Well, them. and then with um, polygamy, uh, you have a very difficult situation again. You have so many charges of inequality among the wives that many husbands bend over backwards to be equal, and that means that they have to um, distance themselves from their wives as well. Uh, I, Augusta Joyce Crocheron, in writing about uh, about polygamous relationships, says anybody can be a regular wife, but takes certain abilities and skills to be a polygamous wife and to bear up under the sorts of things that are required. But it's even harder for the men who must then learn to manage their own own households in peace and. And, yeah. Uh, so no, it's not easy for anybody that uh, yeah. to be seen. Right. Well, that's fascinating. So it must have been um, must have been hard and maybe rewarding to be a pioneer and a pioneer woman. <laughs> well, but what are you going to compare it to? It's just your life. Yeah. Right. The way you do things, and if you've got people that are coming from the mining villages and and um, in England, you know, they're a lot better off in the situation where they have some promise of a future than they are with no promise. Right, of a right, right. You're you're probably of one to not like the sentiment that that people today could have never handled the harsh conditions of the pioneers back then. You think you probably? I sense that you have a faith that humans can rise to to their condition. 
Well, I certainly do believe that. I think we're certainly better nourished and in better physical condition than they were. And we also have technological changes that would, of course, are we going to be able to go across on the railroad? I mean, if if it's, but if we are back to do that sort of thing, yes, I think we could manage it. It's not going to be fun. It takes a long time to actually get in shape to um, pull a um, handcart any great distance, but and as with the party in Nauvoo, there are just wonderful, wonderful um, rewards from doing these hard things together. I know when I was involved a couple of years ago in working on putting on um, the, the Temple Jubilee in Manhattan, and we just had insuperable problems. We had no money. We had too many people. We had too much distance. We had no place to practice. We had no place to put it on. You know, just endless, great, big, impossible problems, which were solved one after another. And we eventually did put on the biggest show that was ever performed at Radio City Music Hall. Mm. Well, when that actually happened, I think any one of us would have walked to to winter quarters or to... Um, Missouri on our knees, you know, we just, <laughs> you just have a heightened sense of, of sort of glorification when you do these hard things. They can, it's very rewarding. Again, a call for, a call for project, project-based faith, maybe. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, now. Go ahead, please. Well, I was just going to talk about another woman. I yes. Know, I talk about any, I mean, if you want me to answer questions, we'll do that too. But uh, I think as an example of a person that could do something in difficult circumstances, that Ella Schiff stands out as a significant person. And again, we really only know about her because she wrote her story. Mm. But she was a plural wife, had several children, when it became possible that she could go east to medical school. This is from Salt Lake. And so she determined to do it. Her husband was not exactly enthused, but what, he was what year, willing. Just, just to get a timeline, what, what, well, what year approximately? I mean, I dare time period? say it. No, time period? I dare not say it. Yeah, in the oh, 70s, 80s. 18, 1870s, 1880s, around there. Yeah. Okay, okay. Right, and medical schools were just opening up for women at all, but Brigham Young favored women being uh, medical practitioners for modesty purposes. And so... Ellis Ship went off to Philadelphia and studied medicine. And the first year she came back for a vacation over the summer, and when it was time to return, she discovered she was pregnant. Hmm. And her husband said, well, you can't go now. And she says, well, I'm going. And she did and managed to deliver this child just after she finished her exams. So, And then she became a, a leader in this medical field in Salt Lake. One of her sister wives, Maggie Ship, also went off and studied medicine. Several others did. And we had this real flowering of Mormon women doctors. Now, that would seem impossible, but it still was doable. Her sister wives could take care of the children. And she managed. She, I mean, she got some encouragement. Anyway, Things like that show me that there are possibilities for Mormon women to do really whatever they really want that is reasonable at almost any given time. Because that's, that was an extraordinary achievement in the day. 
Yes, I mean there were there were more more female doctors in Utah per capita than in any other of the places in the United States. 